Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. I'm going to finish off the series that we started five weeks ago where uh, we started talking about sailing true in a culture storm. Um, I introduced the series five weeks ago talking about the massive change that we are living in and through. And I talked about the fact that many futurists are suggesting that as a result of COVID and all of the other things that have gone on, we will not be returning simply to normal. That we are in a process of change, nobody of whom knows where it will end, but some futurists are suggesting we are caught in the middle of two eras, an old era that is passing, a new era that is coming, and we live in the overlap of those two eras. Mark Sayers calls it the grey zone, futurist Len Sweet calls it liminal space. And in that space, everything has changed. We're living not in a landscape, as it were, where we can see a mountain or a river and get our bearings. We're living in a seascape where the waves rise and fall. And how do you do navigation when there are no fixed points? How do you do navigation in a seascape? So we've been talking about the fact that the skills required to navigate at sea are very, very different than they are on land. And I mentioned 1 Chronicles chapter 12, where there were two eras that were overlapping. Saul's kingdom and kingship was passing away, David's was coming, and there was this overlap period, the gray zone, the liminal space as it were. And in that space, there were men from Issachar, and it says that they had understanding of the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. I suggested that they have what we now call contextual intelligence. They were semioticians. They could look at a series of dots and rather than just see a a blur, they, they saw patterns. They were able to discern how the dots should be joined. And again, I suggested how desperately we need that same wisdom and discernment in our present version of liminal space and in our cultural seascape. In part two, Chris talked about the fact that the grey zone was not only potentially very threatening, but it also was a time of incredible opportunity. The obporto, you know, uh, uh, that phrase opportunity comes from the Latin obporto, which has to do with recognizing the time and tide and taking the tide at its fullness so that you could go into a harbour safely. So there are always opportunities. There's the obporto of liminal space as well, if we're willing to risk. And good sailors know how to take risks. They know the difference between bravery and stupidity. In part three, Megan talked about the difference between ballast that every sailor needs in their vessel and baggage that simply weighs the vessel down and endangers it in stormy weather. And last week, Mike talked about navigating by the North Star, by Polaris in the Northern Hemisphere at least anyway. And no one else and nothing else is sufficient enough to guide us in seasons of great change and great flux except our North Star, who is Jesus Christ. In this closing message, I want to talk about another piece of equipment that is required if we want to be faithful disciples and navigate our seascape well. I want to speak to you about the role of the anchor, the role that the anchor plays in a ship on a seascape. No self-respecting sailor would head out into the ocean without an anchor on board. In very ancient times, that anchor might constitute a great big stone 
through which they'd bored a hole and tied a great rope. But by the first century in Jesus' time, iron anchors with the two flukes were common on vessels. And the Bible speaks about anchors in two ways, both literally and metaphorically. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 27, we have a story where literal anchors are used. I'm sure you know the story well. Paul is on his way to Rome by sea, and on the journey they encounter a vicious storm that buffets them for uh, 14 days. They are at the mercy of the weather and the waves. Toward the end of that time, they become aware that they're approaching land, and as it was night, they have no way to see what was ahead of them. So afraid of being driven onto the rocks, the Bible says they cast out their anchors. And Acts 27 verse 29 says, At this rate they knew they would soon be driven ashore, and fearing rocks along the coast, they threw out four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. This passage clearly outlines one of the reasons it's necessary to have a really good anchor on your vessel. In tumultuous seasons, the anchor holds and prevents the vessel being simply driven by the currents and the storm. So the purpose of an anchor is to stop you going where you don't want to go. I recall an incident many years ago, actually it happened in Brisbane, 1974. Uh, There would have been a terrible, terrible tragedy had it not been for an anchor. A devastating cyclone hit Brisbane in that year and heavy rain and powerful winds lashed the area and the Brisbane River that runs through the city began to rise and areas of the inner city uh, began to be flooded as the river overflowed its banks. Now there was a 62,000 tonne tanker called the Robert Miller that was having its final fitting in the dock in the river and at the height of the flood the tanker broke loose from its moorings. People in the nearby Riverside apartments were in great danger as the tanker lurched out into the middle of the swiftly flowing river. And had it lodged sideways, it would have caused the whole area to flood dramatically and dangerously. So there was also a possibility that the tanker actually could career over the banks of the river and into the apartments itself. So the fearful apartment dwellers are watching as the Robert Miller moves out into the the midstream and then suddenly it stopped. There, miraculously, it remained until sometime later several tugboats were able to secure it to the bank. The river finally receded and the emergency was over and several days later the story of what actually took place uh, emerged and the Brisbane newspaper carried this headline. An anchor stood between Brisbane and total disaster on Sunday the 27th of January 1974. See the Robert Miller had been secured to the bank by wires by six of them Uh, to the wharf while they were refitting it. But the force of the floodwaters caused the wharf moorings to give way and two of the lines to break. When the full weight of the ship fell on the remaining four lines attached to the bank, they also failed and the ship yawed out into midstream. Four anchors at the bow and stern of the ship had previously been let out to their full length of 300 metres. The two at the stern and one at the bow gave way under the force of the river. One anchor remained. It gripped onto some solid rock at the bottom of the river, and though it buckled badly as a result of the pressure of the water, it held. And it prevented the ship from crashing into the apartments or from blocking the river and massively increasing the flood damage. We all need anchors. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 25 in the Living Bible says, Disaster strikes like a cyclone and the wicked are whirled away, but a good man has a strong anchor. 
If we're going to survive in this cultural storm we're presently in, we as disciples and we as a community need good anchors. We're exposed to incredibly strong cultural currents. The church is being pressured in our Western setting from every side, and we are being demanded that we, that we find ourselves on the right side of history, as it were. Morally, ethically, philosophically, we are being squeezed, pulled, dragged, and shaped by cultural currents. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that all those currents are wrong. Sometimes the church needs to be open to change. I actually resonate with what was Billy Graham's motto many years ago when he said, geared to the times, anchored to the rock. Geared to the times means open and available to change where it's required. Geared to the rock means we are not blown around by simply every wind of doctrine that comes our way. Now, without dispute, uh, some of these cultural currents are seeking to take us to a place where discipleship will be confused or, if not, utterly compromised. And there are times for us as individual disciples and for us as a community to simply throw out our anchors and determine that we will not go where we don't want to go. The words of Jesus and the teachings of Scripture provide us with some pretty clear doctrinal anchors, and these need to anchor us against some of the changes our society is trying to thrust on us. Quite frankly, when people say to me, you need to be careful that the church doesn't end up on the wrong side of history, I I want to say to them, I would rather be on the wrong side of history and the right side of eternity than the other way around. And there are some things that we will not compromise where there are clear scriptural teachings, the anchor goes out, and we will not go where somebody else wants to take us, but we don't want to go. When our culture is demanding compromise on clear biblical teachings, we don't need discernment as much as we need simple courage. We need the courage to throw out the anchor and to say, as Martin Luther did so many years ago at the Diet of Worms, if then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, I, can neither, I, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be safe, either, cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I, can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And there are times, I think, where disciples need to take that stand. I cannot, I will not, God help me. What what I have noticed about grey zone and liminal space, however, is that things aren't always as clear as we might like them, and sometimes real discernment is needed in those grey zones. The currents that seek to shape us as a community as a community don't always come from from godless culture, as it were. Sometimes in the midst of the wider Christian community, there are currents that fly around and, uh, and demand that we go in certain directions. Like some of you, I've been around long enough in church life to ex- have experienced some seasons of very powerful currents. I can remember back in the 70s where the discipleship movement just swept through our country with unbelievably destructive impact on so many people. I can also remember in the 1980s the panic over what was called then the Jupiter effect with the planets all lighting, lining up and the, and the supposed tsunami tides that we were going to have and how people were doing preparations and all sorts of things and demanding that whole congregations go along with it. Some of you will remember Y2K at the turn of the millennium. In our season, COVID, vaxxed, anti-vaxxed, the the present freedom movements that we are experiencing and the currents that swirl around. 
Now, I'm aware that some of you might not feel comfortable with what I'm about to say, since you feel quite strongly that Gateway should have actually followed one of those relatively recent currents. In my experience as a pastor, after initial excitement, many of those currents simply end in dead-end whirlpools that have sucked more than one congregation under to its destructions. So I'm going to let you in this morning to a secret about my pastoral leadership. As a pastor, I'm not just slow to respond to those kind of currents. I'm retarded. (laughs) These kinds of issues generate unbelievable excitement, enthusiasm, and fervor, and it's actually sometimes hard to resist as people come with some degree of regularity telling us that we as a church should be doing this, that, or the the other thing. At the risk of being considered resistant to what God is trying to do, I really take time to make sure that it is God who's actually doing these things. I want to know where that congregation is going to be taken. Um, again, let me let, me, let, let me let you into a little secret about pastors. We want our people to be fervent, to be zealous, to be committed. And I'll tell you, there's nothing like a hot potato issue to stir up those kinds of qualities. And once you go with those currents, it's easy to really stir up all those sorts of things. And you can whip a congregation into frenzy, at least for a season. I've suggested cynically to some leaders that I know that their ability to solve these adrenaline-pumping problems is only surpassed by their ability to create them in the beginning. People in our leadership circles will have heard me say a thousand times, they're probably sick of me saying it, But as a congregation, I say, we stick to the main and the plain. I'm not going to be drawn away by all those kinds of currents. We stick to the main and the plain. And I don't feel the need as a pastor to be novel or to to have to be a a cutting-edge church at the vanguard of some new breakthrough. Don, do you just want to be conservative? Do Do you not want zealous enthusiastic? Of course I do. My purpose is to give a radical call from the middle of the road. You say, Don, that's an oxymoron. You can't have radical calls from the middle of the road. Well, I know it's tricky, and I know moving to the radical edge, it's easier to stir things up. But I tell you what, I've seen churches go to the edge and fall off the edge. And my drive, my desire is to give a radical call to people in terms of discipleship, but to do it from the middle of the road. There's a proverb that has meant a lot to me over the years and that I've shared with leaders and pastors as I've had the opportunity. It's Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11, and it's repeated almost verbatim in chapter 28, verse 19. It says this, He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. If I could sort of paint a picture for you. Ministry is often described as the cultivation of a field. Jesus talks about the sower going out. Paul talks about the field being cultivated and, and him planting and Apollos watering. So, so when you're talking about a field being cultivated, you're often talking about a ministry metaphor. And using that ministry metaphor, one of the things I've said to pastors is the first part of this proverb says, a person who faithfully tills the land will be productive. And the Hebrew word tools there is the word obad, and it's the same word that God used when he spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, I want you to guard and keep the garden. I want you to till the garden. It's the same word that's used for priestly service in the tabernacle, where the people were to be uh, 
faithful worshippers of God. In fact, the word obad means to be a servant or to be a worshipper. So here in the first part of the proverb, we've got a picture of a leader and a congregation that is faithfully carrying out the priestly task of worship and service. This is a no-frills, faithful ministry. It is the main and the plain. And the Bible says you do that and there will be productivity. In contrast, the second part of the proverb says, he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. It's really interesting. It's not saying, oh, I really like that. I'm going to go after that. The word follow is a word that's used most often with hostile intent, and it means to run after with hostility. I'm going to put that right. I'm going to fix that up. I'm going to sort that out. Here's a person with, you know, that, we, that we would call, uh, we would say, oh, he's got a bee in his bonnet or a burr under his saddle. They are, they are after something. They've sorted out that something is wrong and they're going to put it right. The problem, though, is the issue they're chasing with their hostile intent is described as vain, as empty, as worthless. This is energy that gets misdirected. And over the years, I've watched pastors, leaders, and churches take up some cause, often with hostile intent. We're going to sort this out. This is wrong, and we're going to put it right. We're going to let the world know we're against this. And more often than not, from my point of view, it seems that these diversions ultimately are a waste of time and energy. And I suggest that we stick to the main and the plain. One wise old Quaker once said, you can't die on every cross. And I, and I suspect that uh, we've done that with regularity. And uh, I, I'm, I'm suggesting we choose our cross wisely. Often I'll say to pastors, stick to your knitting. Do what you are called to do, the main and the plain. Yet there are all sorts of things that can capture our attention. And there will be some people in your church who are called in ministry to those things. Bless them, release them, encourage them, but keep the church on the straight and narrow. He who tills his land faithfully with worship will be productive. Not every current, not every wind of doctrine should be followed. Even if the goal is to prove something is wrong or to put something right. Listen, friends, sometimes you need to put out your anchor and just hang on. Don't go where you don't want to go. So the first thing the anchor does is it stops you going where you don't want to go. But there's another passage in Scripture where the anchor is used, this time metaphorically. And rather than stopping you going where you don't want to go, the purpose is to help you go where you do need to go. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 6, verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the ears of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Firm and secure, it enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. 
In the book of Acts, the anchors were thrown out to prevent the boat going where it didn't want to go. In Hebrews, the anchor is being used to get us to go to a place where we do want to go. And it's related to an ancient sailing practice called kedging. Kedging is a practice of using an anchor to pull a ship in a certain direction when it's unable to get there by its own sails. So what would happen is the kedge anchor was set out uh, at a distance from the ship. A small boat would take the kedging anchor out as far as it could possibly go, drop it, and then the, 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 the ship would kedge, would pull itself toward that anchor. And the action would be repeated again and again until the boat was able to move by its source. So one source stated kedging is a, matter, is a method of pulling the boat out of shallow water when it's run aground. A dinghy is used to set the anchor out in deeper water. The ship is then pulled toward the anchor. These steps are repeated until the ship is in water deep enough to float and to use its sail power. Sometimes William Barclay talks about what was called an anchoria. Now an anchoria was a huge stone that was actually embedded in the ground at the water's edge and a line from that anchoria could be taken out to a vessel where it could be attached to the vessel and it was used to pull its way into the shore when the wind or the tide would have normally prevented it from entry. So here this passage in, in Hebrews is talking about our kedging anchor being the anchor of hope. Our hope is in what God has promised. It's in God's unchangeable character and his unchangeable oath. God is a covenant-keeping God, the Bible says. He makes promises and he keeps them, and his word will not fail us. And when the currents and the waves threaten simply to overwhelm us and smash us on the rocks that we find us, his word is our kedging anchor, and we pull ourselves forward into his purposes. The message translation says this, we who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to, right to the very presence of God where Jesus, running on ahead of us, has taken up his permanent post as high priest for us. Listen, friends, God gives us personal words. I'm sure if we sat down and said, you know, tell me about words that God's spoken to you. Most of us could tell about a time where God gave us personal words. All of you know that those words then are tested. God gives Joseph dreams, but then he is tested with regard to those dreams. And there are times in Joseph's life where those promises seem so far away as to be completely impossible. How on earth, in the bottom of an Egyptian jail, are his father, his mother, and his brothers going to bow down before him? That word tests us. There was a time, of course, and you know the story well. Joseph didn't know the end of the story. We know that when he's in prison, it's all right, Joseph, you'll be fine, mate. You're going to get out. He didn't know that. But kedging toward the promises of God in the midst of your darkness when you think, I, I, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. I know God spoke to me about that person's salvation or that particular area of ministry. I don't know whether it's going to happen. Those are the times you wrap your hand around that, kid, that rope and you pull yourself toward it. You speak it. You pray it. You meditate on it. In the midst of your darkness, when providence stands before you with empty hands, nevertheless, God has spoken. And it's the kedging anchor that holds you. You know the number of times I've gone before the Lord regarding a personal promise, and I've prayed Isaiah 62 verses 6 and 7. 
The message translation says, I've posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. Day and night they keep at it, praying, calling out, reminding God to remember. Sounds like God is a bit, you know, oh yeah, yeah, did, did I actually say that? Of course we know that, that that's not the way it is. But like a secretary, which is the word that's used here in the Hebrew, is the modern Israeli word for secretary. Like a secretary, we go into the boss and we say, this is your appointments for this week. We remind them. God says, do it to me. I've placed watchmen upon the walls day and night. You remind me of what I have said. And, and day and night, over you know, years on some issues, I've gone before the Lord and said, Lord, you said... You said, I will not let this go. Though providence stands before me with empty hands and I feel like I'm in the bottom of a dungeon, I will not let this go. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Never forget your promises to me, your servant, for they are my only hope. They give me strength in all my troubles. How they refresh and revive me. In your difficult times, in your darkness, in the midst of a cultural storm where everything looks to oppose you, Wrap your hands around that cord and kid your way to the promises of God. Now I suspect in closing that some of you are thinking, Don, you know what? I've done that for years and I'm exhausted. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And trouble, quite frankly, has just overwhelmed me. You might say, well, you know, I'm aware that I've failed and perhaps I invited it. Or perhaps it was somebody else that's caused the trouble for me, but it's blocked my way and I just can't go forward. What would you say to me, Don? because I just can't wrap my hands around that cord anymore. I've, I've lost my ability to grip. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this, Therefore I am now going to allure her, and I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. God here is speaking to Israel. And he's saying, yeah, I know you're in trouble. You're in the Valley of Achor. Now, that Valley of Achor is found in the book of Joshua. Some of you will remember the story. But God, when he brought Israel into Canaan, one of the cities that they came to at the very beginning of the conquest was, was Jericho. And God said, when you go in, destroy everything. Do not take anything from that city. It's devoted to me. Well, a man by the name of Achor saw a Babylonian garment and some gold, and he hid it in his tent. He took it. And as a result, when Israel went to conquer the next city, they were soundly defeated. Uh, again, you, you know the story. They all went before the Lord and said, Lord, what, what is it? And, and God showed them that Achan had taken something from the city when he'd been told not to. And he created great trouble for Israel. Um, that, he, he was stoned to death with his family, which sounds rather barbaric, but that's the way things were in those days, and that valley was called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Troubling. Here in Hosea, God refers back to that valley, and it says, you're in the Valley of Achor, but I will make it a door of hope. Though you're in the midst of that situation where your hope is gone and trouble seems to overwhelm you, yet there is the hope that God says, I'll open a door for you. This valley can become a doorway. You say, well, Don, how can that be? I mean, how can God turn that around? The troubling was a result of my failure, my sin. He can't simply wave, a my, a wave away my sin or perhaps somebody else who sinned against me. He has to judge it. That's why I'm in this valley of trouble, and I can't see a way out of it. Look with me at John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus in the shadow of the cross says, Now 
my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Jesus was troubled. He was troubled on your behalf, on my behalf. God doesn't turn a blind eye to failure, to sin, and to the trouble that sin causes, but he has judged it in the person of his son. And Jesus was troubled in my stead and in your stead so that you and I might have a doorway of hope open to us. And though it is dark, I want to tell you, Jesus has gone into the darkness and has opened a door. A door is of no value unless you pass through it. Do you feel hopeless this morning? There's a door open to you. Jesus was troubled so that your trouble could become a doorway to hope. And hope can be restored. It can be refreshed. The message says, grab the promised hope with both hands. Never let it go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline, reaching past all appearances. Appearances are providence standing before you with empty hands. Nothing in the circumstances that you face look hopeful, but looking beyond appearances, right into the very presence of God where Jesus running on ahead of us, the one who was troubled so that we could have trouble as a doorway, has taken up his permanent post as a high priest for us. Can I please have the musicians come? <coughs> we need, and God has graciously provided an anchor as we negotiate our cultural seascape. He's given us his doctrinal anchors. He's given us his word, his pro and he's given us his promises. We use the word as an anchor to go, uh, to make sure that as a community and as a people, we don't go where we don't want to go. But he's given us personal words that we can kedge toward and we can actually go where we do want to go. And in the midst of a cultural storm, God has given us the equipment we need to be a productive and fruitful people. You say, Don, I'm in, a, I'm, in a, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I know. There's a doorway for you. It's a doorway of hope. Jesus has opened it because of his troubling. This morning, by faith, look to him. Let's go through that doorway. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.